Hi, welcome to the Winners Find a Way show and podcast with your host, Trent M. Clark, three-time World Series coach, CEO of Leadershipity, serial entrepreneur, having started 12 companies, coach to the 1%, and an international speaker. This show is going to be your go-to podcast for facing adversity, being inspired, and overcoming obstacles, all from the best in the world, business, sports, and leadership. Hate the crappy ingredients in many beverages and energy drinks? Rebellious Infusions are the go-to functional beverage. They have five or fewer plant-based organic ingredients. No sugar, no calories, loaded with antioxidants to boost your immune system, and L-thionine for brain health. Rebellious Infusions are available at drinkrebellious.com. Rethink your drink. For 10% off of your next purchase, use the code 99999. Hello, everybody. It's Trent Clark, CEO of Leadership at Serial Entrepreneur longtime coach in professional baseball coaching in three World Series. And you are on Winners Find a Way with my guest, Michael Stickler. Michael, how you doing, buddy? I'm really good, Trent. I'm really looking forward to uh, this morning. I woke up just thinking, this is going to be fun, our time together today. So oh, looking forward. I've, I've been excited about this for weeks. You and I set this up a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, man, I got to get Michael on the show. When is this going to happen? So if you are new to the Winners Find a Way, we interview the top 1%. People that have gone through a thing or two before talk about their challenges along the way. I love the quote from Chris McChesney and Sean McCovey from the Four Disciplines of Execution. Winners, when shown data that they are losing, Find a way to win. I love that. It's about resourcefulness. And Michael, before we get started for you, tell them where people can find you. Best place to find my books and be in contact with me is at mikestickler.info. And there you will see my books that I have and you can contact me directly. That is a book or really just a, I should say, a webpage on leadershipbooks.com where I publish my books. That's awesome. And many more books are on leadershipbooks.com, which is great. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute. If you are out there today feeling like, hey, you're on your path to wanting to be elite, to go through these challenges, you want to upgrade, you're an athlete, a CEO, an entrepreneur looking to take yourself to that next level, I do believe this podcast is for you as we dig into the deep things in this show. So super excited about this, Mike. You're a Catalina kid, an island boy, growing up California style. And I've been out. I got a good friend who runs out the jet skis from land to Catalina Island. An right, incredible right. experience, man. If no one's ever done that, I highly recommend it. And you started as an entrepreneurial kid on the island. Talk to me about that. My parents moved there when I was in fourth grade. So we're talking now back in the 60s. Moved my family, my brother, my sister, and of course, my mom and dad moved over there. And I really feel honored to have such a, a unique life as a young boy on Catalina. I remember spending the summers running around in my little bathing suit, no shoes, no shirt, no nothing, just tan skin running around. I would do things entrepreneurial, entrepreneurially, like haul the tourist luggage in my wagon, dive for coins when the steamer would come in the tourists would throw coins off the edge of the or over the side and we would dive for them i actually made jewelry in the winter time and then sold it up and down the beach in the summertime even did things like went and collected the shopping carts for the local safeway and returned them because the manager would give us 25 cents for every cart that we would return and i just had a day all day long i was alone can you imagine being seven years old and running around the island completely by yourself with your friends 
doing whatever we wanted while my parents were working and my older brother and older sister were doing what they did as teenagers. And I just have such great memories of it. By the grace of God, I didn't get myself into too much danger or too much trouble. But there I learned to swim solidly. I loved to I snorkel. And now, of course, I scuba dive and have for years. And so Catalina was just a really um, special place. And by the way, if you grew up over there or lived there for any kind of length of time, refer to yourself as an islander. Mm. And, and that's kind of very possessive, by the way. I am an islander. And... The mainland is what we call overtown. Mm. And so that's just some of the little language that Catalina brings. And my brother, my oldest brother, still has a business over there and still runs an ongoing tour business and whatnot. And so still have big connections in, in to the island. Just was there last summer again after being gone for a long time. And, and it was fun to run into friends that I've known all these years that are still there. And kind of my yeah, I had to introduce myself to some of them because, hey, what, we're old. I don't yeah. have the hair I used to and, <laughs> and whatnot. Yeah. So, I love it. Yeah. So for those who don't know, I mean, Catalina Island is what? Is it 45 miles off the coast of L.A. there? I mean, no, it's, how- 20, it's actually 26 miles, 26 off, the miles. Coast of, yeah, off the coast of Los Angeles or Southern California. There's actually a song that goes back. I think to the 20s or 30s, it says 26,000, sorry, 26 miles across the sea. Catalina Island is awaiting for me. And the island is roughly um, the same length as it is away. So it's about 25 miles, 26 miles long, eight miles wide at the widest point, half a mile wide at its narrowest point. They ha- there's a city there, really just a little town that's one square mile. And uh, the population has all these years roughly stayed around two to 3,000 people that live there full time. And uh, it's just a unique place. It's kind of like living in a fishbowl and it's kind of <laughs> like living in paradise all at the same time. Awesome. So then you're a Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo grad, ag, ag student, agriculture, which I love, entrepreneur most of your life, both in agriculture, other space. You started, you just, you just kept going from the time you were a kid to other businesses. We'll talk a little bit about that. Ultimately, heading into a little master's program at Colorado State out in Fort Collins, continuing to progress this agricultural expertise. And then you become ultimately opening different businesses that you can find some margin in different ways that's outside of agriculture. What, give me quickly, I mean, in addition to this, all this, meanwhile, now, since 2000, you've become an author of 19 books. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So 19 books, four bestsellers. You talk to me about in all those years, different businesses. Talk to me about your favorite business. Well, there was a point that my wife and I returned to Catalina. I left Catalina when I was a child in, in middle school, my parents moved off the island to Overtown. And we actually landed back by Chino in California, back when it was all agriculture and, and that area. And that's where my interest in agriculture really kind of was planted and grown. Yeah. But there was a period that my, my wife and I had, and our children came back to Catalina when I was about 25. And I had this opportunity to purchase a kind of a dormant photograph concession. Now, boy, I'll tell you, this was, I wish I still had this business. It it was just such a sweet deal. So imagine as you get off the boat to come to Catalina, enjoy the day, there's a photograph concession and there is a marlin fish hung upside down. Now it was a wood mock-up hand painted. So it looked just like a real marlin, but it's hanging upside down. You got a rod and 
a descriptor board where you could write your the name of the boat and who was on it and all that. And you had the casino, which is the big landmark building there, and the Avalon Bay behind you. Uh-huh. And I had this guy who was a was a hippie that ran it for me. Now he was a certified hippie. Okay, he came from Ashland, Oregon. This guy was <laughs> legit all the way. Certified. He would sit. He had certified paper carrying hippie. And he had a bamboo flute that he made, handmade, and he would sit out there and, and play that song 26 miles across the sea and basically just hawk people in to get their pictures taken. It was back way back when we still had Polaroids. So he would, we would charge $10 for a Polaroid, $5 for your own camera. And, and then he and I would split it. And every day he would walk into my office on the island and hand me an envelope between three to $500 every single day in cash. I mean, talk about a great, I didn't do anything. All I did was just collect the money and stick it in my pocket, bank it. And yes, I reported it, but <laughs> it, it was just such a sweet kind of business. And what I learned from that business, and it's really rooted in everything that I do is having I call it moving parts. Having less moving parts means it's going to be more profitable for you. So if there's not a lot of, I'll compare it to this. Ask me one time, have you ever owned a restaurant? And I said, no, too many moving parts. Mm. Okay. And in a restaurant, there's just too much going on for me. I'm not saying I don't have any experience in, in restaurant in the restaurant business anyway. But to me, I look at it and there's all these moving parts and there is a much faster way, a much cleaner way to get to margin and get to profit. And that, that one little business taught it to me. I wish I still had it. On the other hand, I wouldn't be the guy I am today because I'd probably still be sitting on the island on my blessed assurance drinking beer now and just waiting for the cash to come in. When I left the island and, and my wife and I left the island, took our kids, we went on to back into agriculture and, and we started several other businesses that um, some were very successful and some not so much. And I left agriculture primarily because there's a saying in ag that says you make it in agriculture either by the womb or by the tomb. Mm. You're born into it or you die making it. And I just re- remember, talk about moving parts. There's a ton of moving parts in agriculture. I just realized that I could figure out some other ways to make a living and then do the agriculture on the side, like through investments or as a vocation or something like that, and fulfill both. And so I went on to a lifetime of being an entrepreneur primarily. That's so great. Let's, let's We're going to dive into your consulting business, which was a pretty sizable one for nonprofit based on faith-based initiative, which is very cool. I want to dive into that. Before we do that, you've got these books, you've written probably a lot of people may know your name, Michael, for the book you wrote about Clive, a couple other ones, Life Without Reservation, big seller. What's one thing that most people don't know about you? I'm a horseman. Most would say, are you a cowboy? No, no, I'm a horseman. A cowboy is a job. And it's true that you see somebody that's in agriculture, wears a hat, cowboy hat, all that lives in the West. It's true that generally accepted, you would consider yourself a cowboy, you accept the idea. But a horseman's a little bit different. A horseman spends his life trying to learn the language of a horse and how does it interact with a human being and how to best interact with a human being. And I, I, as a young man, I fell in love with horses and really, really just latched on to making a lifetime learning experience. I, I trained under two Hall of Fame horse trainers, and then a bunch of others. And then I went out on my own for a period of time and trained mm-hmm. horses. And, and I'm still think of myself as a horseman. I still understand agriculture. 
I don't write as much as I want to these days, but other interests and other responsibilities kind of overshadow that. But most people don't know that about me. Most of them, when they see me in, in my everyday wear, I'm usually wearing a cowboy hat and a trophy belt buckle and, and doing what I do, except for when I'm in the Caribbean. It's too hot down there. Right. That's another secret to most cowboys. They know that when it's too hot to wear that clothes, they, they strip right down to their shorts, wear their flip-flops, and show off their farmer's tan. It's okay. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about, let's take you back to an overcoming time in your life, right? And let's go back to this challenge. You, you own this business, and you've been given a grant, to my understanding, right? Walk me through this. You had this consultant company, consulting company for nonprofit businesses, primarily churches, other nonprofits. And you've got a grant from the Bush administration's faith-based initiative. Right. And so with that, you're going along pretty well, but then we get a change in government. We move in and Barack Obama becomes president. The Bushes are out. There's going to be a change. And what happens then? So several things happened. I was my company, which was a for-profit company, was awarded a grant to train nonprofits in the state of Nevada in sustainability. And it was a $1.5 million grant. So we got five hundred thousand each year for five years or three years, excuse me. And and as you mentioned, it was a pretty our business was a pretty ongoing concern. We had three offices, only one in Nevada, one in Texas, and one in New Jersey. We employed about twenty-five people and Things were going really well, but what what was happening in the background, and I didn't really know it, was that my business manager, the person that was running all the business, the finance, the taxes, everything, she had gone through a divorce and she started a little at a time embezzling some money and then more and more as it went along. And then the government noticed that it was being taken out too fast out of the grant money and came out for a friendly visit. They just wanted to have a friendly visit with us. And uh, well, and that's how they framed it. Well, I had previous commitment in Egypt. And so I wrote them and I said, I know you're coming out, but I have this previous commitment. Is there any way that we need to reschedule it? And they're like, oh, no, no, it's a friendly visit. We're not worried about it. We just want to get to know who you are. And if you've got a previous, you already have this plan, don't worry about it. So I went on to Egypt. My business manager met with them. And what turned out to be a friendly visit wasn't so friendly. What they were very concerned about is how fast this money had been withdrawn. Now, now people don't understand a government grant is a reimbursement grant. You have to spend the money, meaning I had to come up with my own money up front to do the things that the grant said. And then you had to submit the receipts back to get reimbursed for it. People think you just were handed a million dollars and no, not the case. That's not how it's it, not how it works at all. And so when I got back from Egypt, I recognized there was a real problem in about, this was roughly 2009, I'm going to say. Well, also what happened at the same time was the Barack Obama administration came in and they kind of made a big deal out of the fact that the Faith-Based Initiative office was still going, but it wasn't. It went from in January when Bush left and Obama took, on, took over the, Obama, the faith-based initiative office went from 125 people to one person answering the phone sometimes. Mm. Okay. So really there was no real desire for that to go forward. Okay. And so what they were doing also was trying to close down the activities around the faith-based initiative, the awards and whatnot. And so Long and short of it is five years later, they sued me for all of the money in the grant. 
So they basically sued me for about $500,000 of what we had spent. And unfortunately, I'd gone into year two also, and I'd spent all my money going into year two on this grant. And so, and they never reimbursed me for it. So I made the mistake, and I'll tell you that, I, I made the mistake of countersuing him. And when I countersued him, I countersued him for the whole amount of the grant. And then I won. Okay. How did I win? They, by default judgment, they didn't, they didn't answer my countersuit. So when I filed the first default judgment, they cried and went to the judge and said, but we're the federal government. We're really busy. You can't do this to us. And so the judge gave them 60 more days to file an answer. 60 more days came and went and they didn't answer that. So this time the judge was giving us the default and asked us to prepare a, a claim. And while we were preparing the claim, the government turned around and went after me criminally. And their claim was, is that we embezzled money. Well, at this point, I didn't, I didn't see it as embezzlement at all. I didn't even realize that the money had been taken at the scale it had because it turned out was my business manager was actually embezzling the money a little bit at a time and it got to be more and more. And ultimately, she ran down to the government and got immunity with them before they even got the investigation going. So it got all thrown on me. Now, what happens with a criminal case is the civil case stops and then they throw all the weight of the government on you for the criminal case. And it's hard. People don't understand. They, they leak to the media. They go and threaten all your friends. They call you names. They, you just can't even imagine. And that went on for years as they did that over and over. And I, I finally had my trial. She stood on the stand. I, get, I give her credit for this. She stood on the stand and said, yeah, I, these are all the checks that I wrote that I wrote to myself or to my maiden name. I did it because I didn't want the banker to tell her to know that I was taking this money. She said all that. Okay, why not? She didn't have anything to lose. She had immunity. And the jury still found me guilty. And people ask me, well, how could that be? And I said, I don't understand it. I've read that transcript now from the whole trial because it went on for better than a week. I don't see what they saw. I don't. But nevertheless, I ended up being, they were going to send me to prison for 10 years, okay, for what amounted to $200,000. And I hired a new legal team, probably the legal team I should have had, and they negotiated. And what they did was they negotiated with the prosecutor that if they gave him back my civil suit, which was now set for $13 million, which is what the government was going to charge me, was going to pay me. They gave that back to me, back to the government. In other words, dismissed it, that the government would agree to 27 months of me being in prison. And I didn't like it, but I have to tell you, Trent, 10 years, 360 months was scaring me to death. Mm -hmm. And so, or better than 10 years. Uh, and so I ended up making that deal with them, giving back the civil case. And then at the very last breath, after everybody signed the agreements, the, the U.S. attorney in Las Vegas said, no, I want 30 months. And I, I just asked, why? Why? I mean, we all, everybody agreed to this. Why now 30 months? Why three more months? And it said, because I can. Mm -hmm. And so we redid the paperwork and I accepted the 30 months. And then and then when I went to my sentencing, think about this for a minute. I went before a federal judge, the person that's supposed to dictate who's going to prison for how long. That's That was her job. And I can't, we came in there with both parties signing a 18-page, 15-page agreement that this is what the government has decided I should get. And then she just went along with it, just like that. And off to prison, I went. And now, in fairness, I didn't go. That's probably a little too grandiose. I, it was about a year later I went to prison. <laughs> But still, I ended up in a federal camp in California, a federal prison camp, 
It was not a hard thing. People, people ask, what, how hard was it? What was it like? Were you scared? And I just kind of joke and I said, what, this is club fed. It was kind of like going to a Christian men's camp with a lot more cussing. It just wasn't, it wasn't a hard thing, but still you're separated from your family. Your reputation is ruined. I still have people who just, just think I'm a terrible, terrible person. Yeah. That I, I was a terrible con artist. They positioned it that it was a, a charity fraud. I didn't run a charity. I ran a for-profit business. Okay. They, all kinds of things. So I'm just, by some people, I'm just looked at as the worst person in the world and how horrible can I be? Even now, all these years later, it's been 10 years since this all happened. And yet, and you and I were kind of talking offline, where did you kind of have your moment? Well, that first eight months that you're locked up, you, you're foolish if you don't do some serious self-assessment. If you don't do some serious, you're foolish. And there's a lot of guys that don't do any self-assessment. But the fact is, is I was a pretty well-known guy, had a pretty ongoing business. I had a, 25 families dependent on me for their paychecks. All these different things were going on. And all of that was ruined and destroyed and taken away from me. And I had to just sit there and ask God, what, what are you trying to show me here? Mm. What are you trying to put in me or take out of me? If something isn't going the way I thought it was going to go. And... Out of that came a new perspective on the five areas of stewardship that, that each of us is called to live. And that's an area that I spend most of my life talking about now. Let's talk about those five. What's number one? So most of us understand. Okay, so stewardship, let's just talk about that for a minute. Stewardship is the idea that somebody has given you something that belongs to them, but you now have full control over it, stewarding it. Yeah. Maybe somebody loaned you your car or when you rent a place, a house, you are now the steward of the landlord, okay? They own the house, but you're renting a house. Well, in the same sense, God's given five areas to us that we are to steward. He's actually put it in our possession to shepherd or control. The first one we're all familiar with is time. We all have a finite amount of time. It's the only one that's finite. We got 24 hours in a day and, and an unlimited, we don't really, in a limited amount of time on this earth, we don't know how long it going to be. So what are we doing with that time? How are we actually properly stewarding that time? Now, I hear people say to me all the time, I don't have enough time in the day. Well, yes, you do. You do. You have the same amount of time everybody does. You're not stewarding it well based on the priorities that, that you should. The second one is your talent. Over time, both supernaturally and physically, you've been given some talents. You played ball, you coached ball, you, those were talents that was given to you that you developed over time. I have talents as a horseman. I have talents in business. I have talents. Those were given to me and developed over time. I, I became a better and better steward of them. We also have what most of us are always kind of cringe when I bring it up. It's our treasure. Okay. And that's our finances, our resources, uh, our possessions. None of those belong to us. None of them belong to us. You say, well, Mike, yes, it does. I worked hard for it. Yeah, well, you, you had the time and the talent to work hard for us. Those first two were given to you by God, too. You really don't own them. You might steward it better, your possessions, your finances, those kinds of things than others. But those were given to you as well. And then the two that most people don't even recognize, and that's relationship and knowledge or wisdom. So we also have relationships that are come into our lives and go out of our lives. The first and foremost relationship we're mostly responsible for is first with our spouse and then with the children that God's given us. 
And then we have family relationships and then we have distant family relationships and then we have business relationships and friendships. And, and there's just kind of a circle that goes out more and more of these relationships. And, and we're, those relationships were given to us and those relationships have to be stewarded well. And they stunned that idea of the core circle, your spouse, your family and out. Uh, which ones are you really putting the time into and putting the priority into? And then the final one, of course, is the, the knowledge that we have, the knowledge to help others with the things that we've learned over time, help people avoid some of the troubles, maybe help them learn how to do more in business. Like what you're doing, Trent, you're putting people together, you're taking the experiences, your whole totality of your life, and you're putting them on podcasts and, and helping them share their knowledge out to the world. Those, those are really crucial. And we have a tendency, especially in North America, where we'd like try to keep our knowledge to ourselves, sometimes constantly trying to figure out how to monetize it, or our relationships, we try to keep those to ourselves. I don't want you to meet my, my business partner who makes all this money. Maybe it is a good kind of fit. That area, which I call living a life without reservation, those five areas, just being free with it, just having open hands to share and to give, you, you have to use wisdom in it. It'd be foolish to just walk down the street, throw it away, go empty out your bank account and, and throw it out as you go. But you have to use wisdom. But still, if you want to fault me at all, I wasn't really living those five areas in totality before I got locked up. Mm. And I want to do that now. And I'm spending my life doing that now, just trying to bless others where they can be blessed, help people get a step further in their life wherever they can give wisdom where I can. They ask me, well, how do you how do you sit down and talk to you, Mike? How do you get an appointment with you? And I said, yeah, it's pretty easy. You just go on my page, tell them, tell me you want an appointment. We work out a time and I'll talk to you. I talked about just about anybody, but it depends on sometimes on my team, somebody can help them better. So that goes back to relationships. If you want to know about design, you don't want to talk to me. I might put you in connection with Violet, our creative services director, because she can help you better. Yeah, it's really good. So today we're talking with Michael Stickler, the publisher of Leadership Books. And Leadership Books publishes relevant with trending authors that make a difference in your business, life, and family. You can find them, leadershipbooks.com. So good. Michael, take me back as an author of a number of books. You're in prison. Are you thinking like, hey, I'm going to write a book during this time? I've got to sit down and pen something. There's a couple instances that really happen that's I mean, I don't want to say serendipitous, but there's some spiritual movement here that happens with some things along the way that introduce you to one of your topics of your bestsellers. Need to hydrate but tired of plain old water? You need rebellious infusions. No sugar, no calories, loaded with antioxidants to boost your immune system. And L-thionine for brain health. 10 organic flavors and convenient liquid packets. Just add 16 ounces and you are on your way. Rethink your drink at drinkrebellious.com. For 10% off of your next purchase, use the code 99999. Do you want to be our next guest? Or do you have inspiring stories to share? Or do you love to inspire, support, and empower thought leaders? Feel free to send Trent a direct message on Instagram or Facebook at Leadershipity.